Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm editor Candace Gibson, joined by staff writer Jane McGrath. Hey there, Candace. Hey, Jane. You may wonder, what does Billy Joel have to do with World War II? You got me on that one. I don't think I know that. <laughs> well, my personal favorite Billy Joel song is all about soul, but there's one called Leningrad, actually. Ooh. And we are going to be chatting a little bit about bloody World War II battles today. That's almost a tongue twister. Yeah, it is. Um, so just to give you guys a little bit of context on World War II and the casualties, uh, a, a little redux on that. So World War II, um, if you can believe it, was actually the bloodiest war in human history, at least that we know of. And an astounding 50 million lives were lost during the entire war and it's just it's it's crazy to think about how many people that war, that was when we think about the advancements in technology that accompanied the warfare in World War II, it's easy to understand because we're not talking about men going into hand-to-hand combat alone anymore we're talking about air raids and bombs and sure you got airplanes that are really advanced by this time yeah and mm-hmm. you you've got um the japanese kamikaze pilots that we've talked about before and a way really to kill people without having to physically be near them and so i think that that rendered soldiers a lot more ruthless in their strikes that's true and we're talking about the most powerful nations um on the planet at this time and of course if you're not familiar with them the major axis powers at this time during the world war ii were germany Italy and Japan. And there were some other Axis powers that joined them as well, but these were the most powerful. And then the Allies, the opposing forces, would have been Britain, France, the United States, and the USSR back when we were very, very tight. And then as we know, in the course of history, we drifted apart for a while Mm -hmm. and we're working on reparations and things are going pretty swimmingly now. So (laughs) um, anyway, and actually... In the Soviet Union was where one of these very bloody battles took place. And so Jane and I are each going to enlighten you guys about some dire straits. And I'm going to start with Leningrad. So I was listening to Billy Joel on the way to work this morning. And I wasn't listening to Leningrad, but I listened to that once I sat down at my desk. And looking at some of the lyrics, this is a profoundly sad song. Is it? I don't think I've ever heard it. Well, it essentially tells the story of a young boy named Victor who is alive during Leningrad, and he's a little boy, and then when he grows up, he spends some time giving military service, and then when he's out, he's free to choose to do what he wants, and he wants to become a clown because he's seen so much sadness in his life. He wants to do something to give others joy. So I won't um, torture you by singing the song, but I will (laughs) read you some of the lyrics. Um, a child of sacrifice, a child of war, another son who never had a father after Leningrad. And then when we learn that he's become a clown, uh, Billy Joel tells us the greatest happiness he'd ever found was making Russian children glad and children lived in Leningrad. And the siege of Leningrad was a 900-day siege that started in September 1941 and went all the way until January 1944. And Leningrad was the second largest city in Russia, so it really was to the Germans' advantage that they surround the city and work their way in. And that's exactly what they did. And they actually got a little bit of help from the Finnish, I think, uh, coming from the north. And one of the first things that the Germans did was cut out 
the railroad that went to Moscow. So no supplies were coming in for a city of about three million. And of those three million, I think nearly four hundred thousand were children. So people didn't have very much control over what was going on. They didn't have anything to eat. There was very little fuel as well. So dire straits, like I said. And Hitler decided that even though the Germans were occupying this territory, they couldn't possibly care for all these people. So in order to control the population, he wanted to downsize it. So he ordered these massive airstrikes and raids. And what's more, the uh, the winter of January 1942 was bitterly cold. So people were dying, but because there was so much snow and ice, you couldn't even see the corpses in the street. So the number of dead didn't become apparent, really, until spring came and, and people thawed. And That's horrifying. It is horrifying to think about. It mm-hmm. really is. And to yeah. think that you would be a prisoner in your own home. You couldn't walk around in the streets for mm-hmm. fear that you'd be killed. And the thing is, evacuation was available. Like people could have chosen that route, but a lot of people stayed and said, I think only around 500,000 got out. And people who stayed behind tried to keep their lives as normal as possible. Children still went to school. People still stayed in the factories producing war gear and war equipment. And they suffered essentially on things like only a, a quarter of a loaf of bread a day, men, women, and children. And around 1943, they were able to start planting vegetable gardens for some sustenance and open the railways back up. But things were really rough. I think that one woman even recounted in a pretty recent interview that when she was a little girl and lived in Leningrad, her dad worked in a tannery, and he would bring home animal skins, and they would boil them and make stew from them. So things were just really, really bad there. Finally, around 1944, the Soviets were able to quell the attacks, and they finally were able to fight off the the Axis powers, and um, the people of Leningrad really generated a lot of sympathy from the Allied forces, and people in the United States really looked at them as a symbol of perseverance and preservation, and you know, those were some of the principles that the United States was founded on, so they garnered a lot of admiration there. And even today, pretty recently, just in January, actually, um, Dmitry Medvedev ordered that there be a recount of all the Soviets who died in the war because people still don't know. There's still body parts scattered everywhere, people still missing in action, unidentified bodies and mass graves. And I think that today that Russia is still grappling with the incredible losses shows, you know, just how powerful that that was. And that's just one battle in many, in the course of many throughout World War II. That's interesting you bring that up, because when I was researching for this, the, the article and the podcast, it, it surprised me how difficult it was to find exact numbers, because I, I went into it thinking, you know, this is a war that happened in the 20th century, um, a time where we documented, by this time we were documenting everything, you know, we we have you know, film for goodness sake. And, and we have, uh, documents that are readily available. But the, the, the idea that we don't know how many people died, we don't know what happened. It's just really interesting to think about. And also you brought up the idea of evacuation. And that made me think, like, why didn't, I mean, I'm sure some people must have had the opportunity and didn't take it. And one writer, um, I looked into thought that part of this had to do with the symbolic importance of Leningrad because Leningrad was actually the birthplace of the Russian empire. And so it did hold a lot of symbolic importance for them. It did. And 
even in the midst of airstrikes and, and raids, people were scurrying to hide a lot of the you know museum artifacts and valuables and, and tuck them underground or into very safe places so that they could preserve the city's culture. And mm-hmm. even today, Russia calls it the Great Patriotic War. And I think that estimates put the number of casualties between 641,000 and 800,000. So like you were saying, there's this huge range and it is pretty sad that we don't have a definitive number, but thanks to uh, Medvedev, hopefully we'll get that. Yeah, that's really interesting. So like you said, Candace, Leningrad was over by uh, January 1944. And by the summer, as you might know, uh, D-Day happened. And if you've seen Saving Private Ryan or The Longest Day, you know what that day is. And uh, the Allies came in. And they invaded Normandy, and they were doing really well by this point. It was an amazing success. They were making their way uh, across northern Europe, their northern France, and they marched into Belgium. So the Allies uh, were marching through Belgium, and they started slowing down by the winter, about December. Uh, they weren't making as much progress as they were before, and Hitler took this opportunity to pounce. There was a, ve- a major shift in the war, basically. Hitler was doing really well for a couple of years, and then the Allies, on both sides of him, you have the USSR on the east and the Allied troops invading Normandy to the west, and he was struggling with both sides by this point, by 1944. And so he was like, we need to make a last-ditch effort here. If we're going to even try to uh, force the Allies to make peace... We have to launch something right now. And even his officers at this point thought this move was really risky. Mm-hmm. But Hitler, he didn't want to surrender, and he was willing. He had guts. That's true. We'll and he that. was willing to sacrifice <laughs> a lot of his uh, soldiers' lives for There's it as well. There. True. So his strategy was to basically split the Allied troops. They were coming at him in Belgium, and you have the U.S. forces in the south region, and you have the British and the Canadians in sort of the northern uh, part of Belgium. And so he wanted to go in between them and he wanted to make a wedge in between them. And this is where we get the idea of a bulge. I think uh, Churchill came up with the this unofficial nickname for the Battle of the Bulge. And Jane and I were discussing earlier, mm-hmm. I don't get why it's a bulge. Why not Battle of the Wedge? <laughs> That's a bulge true. That doesn't really seem accurate, but maybe you guys have some insight on that that you can email us about. That's true. Please do. So that's where you get the unofficial nickname. And so Hitler uh, was a really smart guy, as you probably know. He brought in about 250,000 men with about 1,000 tanks and armored vehicles. And tanks were a major deal in this battle. It's primarily known as a tank battle. And keep this in mind that if, since you're, since Hitler is, uh, is driving trank- tanks through, he's going to need a lot of fuel as well. And this comes into play later. So he's driving his tanks through this wedge that he's trying to build. And he takes uh, a day that has particularly bad weather because he wants to ground the Allied air support. And so on December 16th, when the weather was particularly bad, he launched this surprise attack. And it's really important that it was a surprise because it caught the Allies, obviously, off guard. And this put him in a major major advantage right off the bat. So you got the surprise going for him. You got the weather going for him. And in addition to this, this is what I found really interesting, is that he also planted some saboteurs into, into the Allied troops. They, he gave some of his English-speaking uh, German soldiers U.S. uniforms. And he sent them in to infiltrate and sort of just wreak havoc as much as they could in the U.S. forces. And they did things... Just like spreading bad information, confusing people, even switching uh, road signs, which I sh- I just find oh it's like straight out of a cartoon or maybe like a silent movie comedy. Uh, it's like I didn't know people did that. <laughs> 
<laughs> to send them the other way. Um, and so the Germans were doing really well. As I said, they, they attacked first on December 16th. They drove the Allies back a few miles, and they were doing really well. Finally, they got to this town named Bastogne that the Allies had occupied, and the Germans were able to surround the town. And they sent in a message. They were like, you know, surrender now. We're, we're definitely going to get to you, but we're going to give you a chance to surrender. And this American Brigadier General, uh, Anthony McAuliffe, he replied, now an infamous response, one word, and he said, nuts. And I'm not sure if I'm giving that the right inflection, because when someone asked what he meant, he said, go to heck. <laughs> and he didn't say heck, but you get the picture. So finally, the weather cleared up. They were able to hold up with Bastogne, by the way, um, and the Germans uh, were not able to take it. So the weather cleared up eventually, and by December 26, Patton, as you might know, General Patton, came with his third army, and he was able to help protect the, the town of Bastogne. And then by January 3rd, the U.S. forces were able to gather their supplies to launch launch a counteroffensive. And so by this time, the Nazis were also struggling uh, with their supplies and fuel. They didn't have enough to to keep their, their tanks running, to keep their soldiers fed. And so they began retreating by about the 8th and the 16th of January. One interesting point about this is that the Battle of the Bulge features what might be the first jet bomber raid in history, where they used jet bombers to actually bomb a railway that was bringing supplies to the Allies. So that's pretty interesting factoid right there. So in all, the Battle of the Bulge is known as one of the most bloody battles, at least that Americans have ever fought in. 19,000 U.S. soldiers lost their lives just in this battle alone. And that's not including those who were wounded, which, uh, wounded and missing, which were about 70,000. Yeah. And you explained to me earlier that the term casualties encompasses not only the dead, the injured, the sick, the missing. That's right. And the fact that that we were discussing earlier that we're not quite sure of exact numbers even now. Right. It's so fascinating to think, too, about World War II, not just in terms of the war, but in these many violent battles that constituted a larger whole. And we're talking about battles that were occurring in the USSR and over in Western Europe, as well as the islands over by Japan. Mm -hmm. The theater of war was so widespread. And it's no wonder that today, and even contemporarily back then, there were so many books and even operas and films and and biographies written about the people who were part of the war and figures like Churchill are so revered even today for their strategy and, and kind sure, he's and, one of my favorites yeah and even just his bravado I, I think he's <laughs> such a, a great character you know never never give up and yeah. we see why because you can persevere just like the people in Leningrad demonstrated and the soldiers who fought at the Battle of the Bulge that's and right Jane wrote this article about the five bloodiest battles of World War II and we have shared two of them with you and we're not going to tell you what the other three are because we want you to go read the article for yourself. So be sure to check that out on HowStuffWorks.com. And if you have any feedback for us or suggestions for future shows, give us an email at HistoryPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 